0: Let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are in a season that has been named by the church Ordinary Time, and it's named that because the Sundays of Ordinary Time are numbered, as in the word ordinary. It's also a time in which we hear the stories that Jesus taught, the parables he told, and also we hear his teachings about his life. So the teachings are anything but ordinary, and yet use ordinary terms, ordinary ideas, and Jesus does this in a way that makes this time, and this season, extraordinary as we find what is holy in everyday living. Last week's gospel reading is chapter one of this story in which Jesus takes the disciples' some 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, which is their home and the primary area where they do their ministry. He takes them to a city called Caesarea Philippi, which is named after Caesar and a Caesar named Philip. It is a Roman city that is the center of trade and is a center in which empire reigns, power and wealth and armies it is here that Jesus teaches a profound lesson by asking a question, which is what Jesus is prone to do, right? And Jesus says to them, what are people saying about me? What's the gossip on the street? And the disciples fall all over themselves with answers, none of which are actually accurate, until Jesus asks the question again and says it directly to the disciples. Who do you say that I am it's a profound question in the shadow of this city named for kings, he's asking the disciples which king are you going to follow and Peter who is actually I should say Simon uh responds to Jesus and says, you are the Messiah, the anointed, holy one of God. Isn't that interesting that Simon names not just a name of Jesus, but and not just what he does, but who he is and it is there that Jesus, almost, you can hear his delight, and he blesses Simon and renames him, calling him Peter Petra, the rock, and says, on this rock I will build my church. And then gives the keys to the kingdom and reminds all the disciples that whatever they bind on earth will be bound on earth and whatever they will be bound in heaven and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and actually giving them permission and empowering them to do the work he is calling them to do. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being Peter, being renamed, being blessed, being told that you are the one upon whom Jesus is going to build the church. Can you imagine being empowered in that kind of way? And yet, can you imagine what happens right after that part of the story? The part that we hear today. Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block. Great wordplay, isn't it? You will be a cornerstone for the church. Oh, no, you'll be a stumbling block. Or maybe it's just the shock of it. You know, Peter gets in Jesus' face and says, Forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him right back, which is not generally Jesus' way. Jesus has put a difficult situation in front of them. And it must have been deeply painful for Peter to recognize that he had fallen so far. I mean, can you imagine? Peter couldn't imagine. He couldn't imagine that Jesus had come not just to comfort people, but to set people free. I mean, comforting isn't that hard. You give people a little bread and some fish and they're comfortable. But freedom is different. Freedom requires that they see that what they have isn't life-giving in the first place. It had to be incredibly painful to lose the position and the argument. Given this turn of events, I think we can probably connect Peter's disappointment to our own. I mean, let's confess it. I mean, truth be told, we want a strong God. I mean, isn't that what we've been looking around for in these past months? A strong God who will wipe away a plague, who will return our fortunes, who will build a family on earth Isn't that what we really want if we're honest with ourselves? And those desires make it hard, let alone, make it hard to accept, let alone celebrate, Jesus saying with great vulnerability that he must suffer and die. And we tend to forget that last phrase, and on the third day rise. until we realize that it is exactly in our own vulnerability, suffering, and death that we most need God and where Jesus promises to meet us at the cross. But this week, in light of everything, well, COVID, the economy, Jacob Blake, wildfires, Hurricane Laura, and oh so much more, it might be better to focus on the verses we often overlook. Then Jesus told the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose it, lose their life for my sake will find it. It is the classic teaching of a Jewish rabbi and counterpoint a a setting up of a paradox. In order to gain our lives, we have to lose it. And we will definitely lose our lives if we gain the world. So what did that mean for Peter and the other disciples, and what might it mean for us? Some among us embrace Jesus' words, feeling both called and capable to make decisions that are a reflection of our Christian commitment. We, we feel empowered to, to the point of sacrifice and see Jesus' words as an invitation. Others of us struggle to find joy in these words. I mean, being aware of our own limitations and so doubt our ability to embrace the cross that we are invited to carry. Still, some of us experience this as a request to denigrate ourselves, and can point to many examples in our culture where specific persons or groups have been told by their oppressors to take up their cross and bear it. For both these latter groups, Jesus' words are not an invitation but a burden imposed on them by Jesus and others. But David Loos, president of a seminary, tells us that there might be another way to think of this, which is simply to recognize that suffering happens. Whether we choose it, embrace it, or resist it, Jesus Christ has promised to be present with us in our suffering. But I think so many of us today are aware Jesus' words of impending suffering and death, so much so that we assume it was all part of God's plan. It's all a part of a plan. So let me say aloud what some will call blasphemous. That is, that God could only conceive of redeeming humanity through a violent death of the one we call holy. Well, that's not true. Wouldn't that limit God's creative work in the world? No. Rather, God in Jesus came among us bearing a vital message of love and grace, acceptance and peace. Even though Jesus knew that in his humanity and in the preaching of that message it would likely end badly for him, I mean, you know, they killed the messenger. In this sense, the cross was not Jesus' goal, but rather the outcome of Jesus' faithfulness in the face of unfaithful followers. Jesus chose the cross, trusting God to work through the cross, rather than take a judgmental warrior Messiah path to victory by siding with the ways of the empire. He trusted that God would work, even through the extreme measure of death on a cross for the sake of the world, for the sake of the future, because God loves the world and us within it so much. Which leads us to the critical question for today. If the question for last week was, who do you say that I am? The question for us this week is, can we follow a crucified Lord? In preparation for today's sermon, I read a lot of articles and commentaries and sermons on this text because, well, the cross.
1: As I read, I realized
0: that all the things I read were written pre-March 2020. As I pointed out to my students in my Congregational Leadership class at Bright Divinity School, nothing written before March 2020 makes much sense unless we look at it through the lens of post March 2020. I was reading one article that said, People today live in a dream world. We have entirely too we have it entirely too easy and too good to be bothered with death. Ours or anyone else's. We need this text's reality check regarding death and resurrection. Well, let me just say what's obvious. We are having a reality check times 10. And we're living in it. So I think the creators of the Revised Common Lectionary had the right idea when they paired this uh, prophetic word of Jesus that he will suffer and die and on the third day rise, that they have paired this what appears to be bad news With the witness of Paul in the letter to the church at Rome. Paul reminds us what love looks like when we follow, faithfully follow Jesus, our crucified and risen Savior. Love one another, persevere in prayer, practice hospitality, and as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Check, 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 check. That's good stuff, right? This passage, including the eight verses that preceded, are so good, I commend the 12th chapter of Romans to you. Print it out and take a phrase each day of the week and make it your mantra or make it your reflection or make it your contemplation. Here, Paul talks about the marks of a Christian who follows Jesus right So practice. Why not practice it? However, there is this one little problem in the midst of the instructions. Now, if we were brainstorming what love looks like when we follow Jesus, we'd probably have a very, very long list before we ever got to heaping coals on your enemy's head, right? I mean, what is that all about? I mean, it is odd, isn't it, in all this good stuff about how we are to live faithfully that Paul then brings in this heaping coal, hot coal, on your enemy's head. But actually, Paul is echoing the teachings of Jesus, isn't he? The one who taught us that if our enemies harm us, we are to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't invent this either. It grew from a well-loved passage of the First Testament, the Hebrew stories. For instance, in Deuteronomy 32, we hear the words of Paul. Paul didn't come up with this either. Paul saying that we shouldn't exercise vengeance, that that's God's business. And Paul actually didn't come up with the burning coals on his own either. It comes from Psalm Proverbs 25. It says, if your enemies are hungry, give them bread to eat. And if they are thirsty, give them water to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads and the Lord will reward you. Gosh, I I just love this. You know, I just love this. I just see a glint in Paul's eye. You know, we've been behaving and doing all this good and righteous stuff and then be nice to them because you will heap coals on their heads. I mean, isn't it what we all want to be able to do? To heap coals on their head? Now, Needless to say, biblical scholars have struggled with these passages for years. I mean, one suggests that perhaps the proverb invokes some kind of obscure passage from another faith tradition. I'm going to say that we really don't have to go that far to figure this out. I mean, haven't we all felt what it's like to have flaming coals heaped on us? I mean, haven't we all experienced the hot discomfort of realizing that we were wrong or had done something wrong? I mean, haven't we all felt the distinctive fiery squirm when our pettiness contrasts with another's graciousness? Call it guilt. I'm an on-again, off-again fan of the TV show Mom. The story is about a woman named Christy and her mom, Bonnie, and their friends, who are all recovering alcoholics. And I love it because it's just so honest. Now, because of Christy and Bonnie's financial situation, the daughter and mother share a very small apartment, and Christy, in this episode that I was watching, was done with her mother. Bonnie, who is self-absorbed and selfish, and it's all about her. Christy was convinced that She was right, and Bonnie was wrong about everything happening in the house and and their relationship. So Christy finally breaks down and goes to talk to her AA sponsor, Nora, and explains the situation. And here's what the sponsor says. Christy, you need to go be nice to your mother. And Christy about falls out. But... Nora continues, you need to go be nice to her and do nice things for her and help her. And, oh, by the way, not just outwardly, but in your thoughts, too. You have to be nice. And as Christy started to walk off, Nora says, with joy in your heart. Now, can you imagine that kind of prescription? Christy puts up a good fight and good arguments as to why that won't change a thing, but ultimately does what her sponsor asks, and turns out she is the one transformed, and so is their relationship. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that it's fair, it's not fair to hope for change from those who have hurt us. Instead, it is fair to hope for our own change. Now, we could try guilting our enemies by berating and lecturing them, which is what we often try to do, but that would be more like, you know, generating irritation rather than the interest in changing. Well, we do it anyway. Paul knew it too. So, as in the proverb, teaches us that We move forward in extravagant kindness, trusting the power of our deeds to generate a holy fire in those around us, trusting in the Spirit to do her work of transformation. So today we get a choice. We can choose the way of Jesus and the freedom of the cross or the way of self-absorption, selfishness, power, wealth. And if we choose Jesus, we will need to remember that there is redemption in our suffering as we make sacrifices for family and friends, foregoing our individual rights during a pandemic for the sake of a community's health. Still, we know that even so, sometimes it's hard to tell if there's anything redemptive in suffering. And yet, Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord, identifies with all our suffering promises to meet us there. What does take up your cross and deny yourself look like in this case? I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like treating yourself as lower than low. Maybe it is choosing in the decisions we face each day and in the big decisions we are challenged to make on occasion. Simply follow Jesus and act in ways that reflect God's love acceptance, abundant life for us and for all people. I happen to think this is what John Lewis believed and lived. Deny yourself is not the same as forget all about yourself and certainly not debase yourself. By linking and all people to us, we realize that God is in it for everyone and not just us. And that is, I think, what denying ourselves really looks like, seeing that we are part of something larger and that there is no meaningful you and I apart from us. All of us. Of course, in all of this, we must remember that we literally not, cannot save our own lives. And our attempts to do so often take a toll on ourselves and others. But as we surrender that impulse and hear God's trust and promise, discover that those things which seek to take our lives are no match for our crucified and risen Lord. And in that is freedom. And in that